Let's, let's pray together. Father, with Christ as our solid, firm foundation, being consumed with Jesus as our all in all, finding you faithful even in the desert times, we look forward to the great hope that is ours. As we long for heaven, we look forward to the, the day when the trump will sound and you'll gather your church unto yourself. In the meantime, though, Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Would you strengthen us and empower us in the power of your might, with your resurrection power, with the strength and authority that comes from building our lives upon your scripture and your word? Father, we thank you that we can gather like this today. Now encourage us through your Holy Spirit and through your holy word in these few minutes as we worship through the study of the word together. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Commit ourselves. Amen. 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 Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I wonder if you remember what a Polaroid camera is. They were really cool, weren't they? We didn't have one at our house, but we really thought that they were really neat. You know, you go to your buddy's birthday party or something, and his mom's snapping these Polaroid pictures, and it comes out, and there it is. A moment frozen in time. If you don't know what a Polaroid camera is, look it up on Wikipedia. Go to a museum, you'll see them. But do you know how that Polaroid camera just takes a moment and it kind of feeds it out and there it is? It's like all pictures. I have some Polaroid snapshot moments in my mind that I wonder if you can relate to. Moments that are frozen in time and they weren't really thought out moments. They weren't really moments that that built up, it was like there was an instantaneous snapshot in time and all of a sudden, a lightning bolt of thought goes through your mind and bam, and I can remember those moments. I can remember being in the band room of my high school um, in the mid-70s, putting my trumpet away after a football game in marching band and I've referenced this moment through the years and looking through the corridor, through the double doors, out onto the stage of the gymnasium where after the football game, it was going to be a big party and a dance and all of my friends were going, but I was the Christian kid and I, my mom and dad told me you shouldn't go to that if you're a Christian. And almost always Monday morning testimonies of what happened at the dance, after the dance and into the night bore witness that it was not a place where someone living for Christ should be. But I tell you, there was a snapshot, a flash, a moment as I stood and paused before I drove home by myself to get to bed as fast as I could to get up at 4.30 to go milk cows while all my buddies were going to go party with their girlfriends. And for a moment, I just wasn't 100% sure that this being a Christian and Christ follower was a good deal. Do you have any of those snapshot moments? You might not have been thinking about it and you weren't even looking for it. I have a lawnmower moment late at night as a young youth pastor, dirt poor, trying to keep a dilapidated lawnmower that would 
I always just felt like the world had a lot better vocabulary to describe that lawnmower than a youth pastor. And I started my lawn that evening and then it's 10.30 at night and I didn't get my lawn done and I'm trying to figure this thing out and put it back together because it just fell apart. And for a Polaroid snapshot moment, I thought to myself, all of my buddies with real jobs have new John Deere's. And for a moment, a flash, you think to yourself, is it really all it's cracked up to be, this Christ following? I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 10 and the end of 11. We need to comment on the last few verses of chapter 10. They're really interesting verses. They read at first with a little bit of an anomaly, a little bit of a puzzle to them. What in the world did Jesus mean here? They are especially appropriate with Tom and Heidi present, I think, uh, as um, Jesus is concluding chapter 10, this passage on discipleship. It's an encouraging conclusion. Verses 40 and 42 of chapter 10 are an encouraging conclusion to a difficult talk. Jesus has been challenging the disciples how difficult it's going to be to go out. And if you identify with Christ, and then you go out, and you bear the message and the marks of Christ, that they're going to treat you, the student, just like they treat the teacher. And they called him Beelzebul. Lord of the flies. You devil. And it's not easy being a disciple and you're going to go places and you're going to minister to people who reject you. But as he concludes the discipleship challenge and sends the 12 out by pairs, six groups of two, for this first missionary journey, he concludes with a very encouraging word and he reminds them that some along the way, Tom and Heidi, some along the way will receive the word. And the word will bear fruit. And in verse 40, he says, And remember, whoever receives you, they receive me, speaking of Christ. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, speaking of his heavenly Father. So what you have here is a shared blessing for the the one who receives the message of the gospel. That by receiving the messenger, you're receiving the one of whom the message is about, and the one who sent him to be the ultimate message. And so there is an identity. And so in a way, like Tom and Heidi are disciples going to a difficult place and they go in Jesus' name and people who receive them, it's the same as receiving Christ into their home. Now, Tom and Heidi are not Christ, but they represent Christ as his disciples and as his messengers. And the ones who will receive the message will receive the messenger, that's Tom. And they receive the one who sent them, who's Christ. And they receive the one who sent him and identify with him. It's all a unified package. And I like to think that the senders that were involved in those who are sending, and there's an identity, there's a blessing, a shared blessing. And the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And so the one who, the woman who took Elijah, or Elijah, I didn't check my fact checking here, help me Tom, and and the oil, it was Elisha, and the oil that never ended, or was it Elijah? Um, It doesn't matter, you can Wikipedia that too. And, and the oil never ran out, and, and, he, and she was a blessing and had him up in the prophet's chamber. And, 
And she received a prophet. And just like God has a special commendation and blessing for his prophets, the one who received the prophet and fried eggs and scrambled, uh, and scrambled eggs and, and fried potatoes, and, you know, they receive a blessing. It's an encouragement to us embedded in the community that as God's people are around and as we bring support, you're part of identifying with the blessing. And the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. God blesses and commends those who are righteous. And I think these are just synonyms for the disciples, prophets, righteous person, even my little ones here. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. He's talking about those who go out in his name. If you just give him a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, you have the right motive. You're God's person. You're God's messenger. Let me bless you. Then I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There is a commendation. There is a reward. Every time the choir sings, I move the pulpit forward. (laughs) Happened two weeks ago. I almost fell off the platform. I'm sorry. (laughs) And you receive this reward, this commendation, this, this shared blessing. I tell you, that should motivate us in an authentic, spiritual, genuine way to put 20 and 50 and $100 bills in the offering to meet Tom and Heidi's needs because we're taking care of the prophet, the righteous one, the disciple. And then even as we interact with one another because we're all called to be disciples. But he's speaking specifically about those when they would approach a community and they come in and they would give them a cold water and meet their needs and they wouldn't have to shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next town that that individual will receive a blessing. And I think Jesus was teaching them to teach the people that they would receive a blessing. I think that's what those little verses say as he concludes in a very encouraging way. He then, evidently and obviously even though the text doesn't say it, sent them off And it would appear then as we enter chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. It is likely that Jesus had a stint of solo ministry at this time. The disciples were out and the ramifications were that the gospel would be multiplied through multiple teams ministering. So now instead of Jesus and his 12 in one location teaching and ministering and healing and so forth, he sends them out. And they are now seven different units, six groups of two plus Jesus. And they minister and and he preaches and teaches as is his pattern. We then have in the next section some interesting responses to Christ. We're going to see this in John the Baptist's response. We're going to see it in unrepentant cities as well. We're going to see responses to people who will come and enter into his rest. How do people respond to this Christ? How do they respond to this gospel? Chapter 11, verse 2 begins a section that is very fascinating. Let's read it. Now, when John heard, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Christ, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them and said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. 
Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. It is a paraphrase of Isaiah that he's quoting that he knew that John would recognize that pronounced prophecies about the Messiah. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me, verse 6. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Did you think it was just a little flappy guy out there, a little sissy? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But then, did you go out... What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. So Jesus is commending John, even though, admittedly, John has asked a question in a Polaroid shot moment of doubt. Are you really the one? Jesus now goes on and he affirms John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger. This is what is written about John, verse 10. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then this encouraging word to us, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Remember, he said it would bring a sword. The gospel would bring a sword. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John... And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So John the Baptist was kind of a manifestation of Elijah, a New Testament prophet, you might say, even though it's pre-cross and still Old Testament. He is another one of God's men coming, proclaiming the truth, standing for righteousness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it, it, it is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And the son of man, speaking to him about himself, Jesus said, came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We'll stop there. I think that it's interesting that someone with John's pedigree, you'll recall his unusual birth, won't you? We don't have time to turn there, but that's in Luke chapter 1. There is extensive material in Luke's gospel in chapter 1 about John the Baptist's birth. Remember his father was Zechariah. He was the priest chosen to go into the the Holy of Holies to represent the people. The angel appeared to him, told him he was going to have a son. He's a really old man. This is one of the accounts of, of multiple births in the Bible of special individuals who were born to parents who were way beyond childbearing years. And Elizabeth and Zechariah in their old age and she who was barren had a child and John or Zechariah didn't believe it and so he was struck mute, remember? He had to take a writing slate and write and his name shall be John. He had the most unusual birth. And you know, he had an unorthodox life and upbringing. He was a Nazarite. A Nazarite was one who was given over to the Lord from birth for special service. He was never to cut his hair. He was never to drink from the fruit of the vine. He was never to touch an unclean thing or a dead animal, dead carcass. He was, it was symbolic of being separated from corruptible things and unto God and being a holy man. We also know in 
Luke chapter 1, verse 80. There's over 80 verses. There's 80 verses in chapter 1 of Luke. It's a good chapter to memorize. It's like that he lived, and it's what Jesus was talking about. Did you expect somebody to come in soft clothing? They're in king's houses. That's not John. John wore clothes woven from camel hair. It was like wearing burlap or something or canvas. And he was rough and he was ragged and he lived in the wilderness and he was an outdoorsman. And it said that there he ate locusts and honey. He lived off the land. This guy didn't have clean fingernails or trimmed toenails. This guy was rough and woolly, looked like a duck commander stand in. (laughs) And he's the one crying in the wilderness, but he's the one that God had a plan to come out of the wilderness and to proclaim, make the way straight, the Messiah is coming. And that was his message. His message was repeated by Christ. John's the one who said first, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the age-old message. It's still the message of the gospel today. Repent of your sin. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not going to be like this forever. And then Jesus' very first message was John's message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John not only had this unorthodox life, but he had this uncompromising message that Jesus is the Messiah. He proclaimed him Messiah all the time. He also had that unmistakable unshakable moment where in the river Jordan he steps with Jesus our Lord and he baptizes him and what happens John's the one that has our Lord in his hands baptizing him in water and indeed it was immersion that was a joke (laughs) but I really mean it and he baptized him and he comes up out of the water it says And the sky split and the dove descended and the Lord says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Who's holding our Lord at that moment? John is. But then you know what happened? Because John didn't mince words. John publicly attacked Herod, the king. Who had had done some hanky-panky with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and now had her in his palace and was living in an adulterous, unlawful, immoral relationship. And John spoke loudly and publicly against the king for this unlawful relationship. And the king said, I'll show you. And he throws him in prison. And John has probably been in prison now for about one year, maybe a little bit longer. They think they know from Josephus the historian the castle out in the wilderness where they put John in prison. There is implication and good reason to believe. And it was a pit. It was a hole. Let me read a quote from the Bible commentary William Barclay quoted in John MacArthur's New Testament commentary. And let me just read to you for a minute. And it gives you a sense of how John was captured and how he was held. Think about this. This is a wilderness guy. This is a guy who often did not live with a roof over his head. This is a guy who all his life lived outdoors under the sky. And now he's in captivity, in darkness. William Barclay writes, He, John the Baptist, was a child of the desert. All his life he had lived in wide open spaces with the clean wind on his face and the spacious vault of the sky for his roof. 
And now he was confined within the four narrow walls of an underground dungeon. For a man like John the Baptist, who had probably never lived in a house, this must have been an agony. In Carlisle Castle, there is a little cell. Once long ago, they had put a border chieftain in that cell and had left him for years. In that cell, there is one little window which is placed too high for a man to look out, to look out of it when he is standing on the floor. On the ledge of the window, in, in the stone ledge of the window, there are two depressions worn away. They are the marks of the hands of the border chieftain, the places where day after day he had lifted himself up by placing his hands on that ledge that he might look out on the green dales across which he would never ride again. John must have been like that. And there is nothing to wonder at and still less to criticize in the fact that questions begin to form themselves in John's mind. So John is in captivity. He has been proclaiming the Christ. And you would think that he is the last person who would ask this question. Before we answer further why John probably asked these questions, this question the way he did. And I, and I, think, that, I think that it is less about information that John was looking and more about just wanting to hear confirmation that yes, we're on the right track here. In loneliness and in discouragement and in darkness, that's when doubts can creep in, can't they? That's when your perspective can get skewed, even if you're John the Baptist. This is probably all we'll be able to get through today, but I thought it would be valuable for us at this point to take a few minutes to build a foundation of of a biblical understanding of doubt. I suspect that the truth be known that you have your own Polaroid camera hidden away and that you could present some snapshot moments where perhaps out of nowhere, all of a sudden, the thought occurred to you and is frozen in your mind and doubt wells up. It's not that you need more information, it's just a need for confirmation. Am I really on the right track? Is it really worth it? I thought it was interesting to just kind of think through and and rattle off that came to my mind people and times and places in Scripture where people doubted and what caused that doubt. I trust you'll find this helpful. We'll use this for our final minutes here. And if you do make a list, I wonder if you can identify biblical examples of doubting God and what causes doubt. The first one, let's do some Bible study. The first one is Psalm 73. Would you look there with me? Psalm 73. What causes doubt? The psalmist Asaph, a musician in God's temple who wrote songs about God, who meditated on the character of God, who understood God's attributes, who loved God, wrote a song about his own snapshot of doubt. He starts the song by saying, Truly God is good to Israel. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, and He's good to those who are pure in heart. I'm using the ESV, by the way. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He says, why? Verse 3. 
For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to talk about some of his imaginations and about how their children don't get sick and how everything they touch turns to gold and how they get promotions and then he's just faithful in the house of the Lord plodding along long, and, and pretty much nothing good is happening to him. You have to read the second half of the psalm. He gives the answer for perspective. But I thought that our first biblical example of doubting and why we doubt is, number one, it is seen in Asaph, the psalmist. Number one, it is impatience with God's plan of blessing for my life. It is impatience with God's plan of blessing for my life. What was Asaph's problem? He wanted some things in his life, evidently, that he saw coming true in the lives of godless people, and it seemed like they had it made in the shade, and his life was one of sacrifice. His life was one of discipline. His life was one of of releasing things and waiting on God, and maybe he was getting tired of waiting. And this impatience created doubt. I know that God is good to Israel, but as for me, there was a snapshot. There was a Polaroid moment of doubt where his feet almost slipped. He could tell you about that moment. He doesn't tell us about it, but I think he could tell us exactly about that moment when his feet almost slipped because he envied the wicked. Can you relate to that? You're looking around and you're thinking, man, I'm just not sure this Jesus thing is paying off the way it's supposed to. And look at the world around me. Just loving life and surfing every day. Well, it's really not true, but it's what we imagine. Reason number one that we doubt can be impatience with God's plan of blessing for my life. Number two is overwhelming circumstances and God's lack of response. Overwhelming circumstances and God's, you might put a parenthesis there then, and God's seemingly lack of response. We have biblical examples of this. This would be um, uh, Jesus' disciples. Let's go back to Matthew if you have your bulletin there or something. And remember a story from Matthew chapter 8. This account is in, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels as well. It's 8.23. It's a very familiar story. It's when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. The storm comes up. Matthew Matthew 8.23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And he was asleep. Give me a break. I'm in the middle of the worst moment of my life. And I can't find God or Jesus anywhere. He's asleep. He's not paying attention. It's not going to solve my problems. And I got circumstances, man. I got stuff going on that are just messing with my mind. And I might even die. And where's God? And as a result, doubt wells up. Circumstances that are overwhelming and God's seemingly lack of response. Seeming lack of response. If you turn to chapter 14, we know that Jesus wakes up and has it all under control. With one word, Willem's word this morning, shalom, peace be still. He calms the sea. Chapter 14, verses 28 through 33 is a wonderful story. Again, they're out on the sea. Again, it's in the night. Again, there's a storm. And Peter answered him, 
Lord, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So the disciples are out on the boat. It's in the middle of the night. They look across. They think a ghost is walking across the water. It gives them the willies, man, the the hairs raised on the back of their neck. And they realize, and then it's Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you. I don't know why this thought went into his mind. Command me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat. And it's stormy. And he does the most cool thing that you get to tell your grandkids about. He walked on water for a moment. But then the circumstances overwhelmed him, didn't they? And all of a sudden he thinks God's not going to respond. God's out of control. Jesus isn't paying attention. I'm the one walking on the water now. What about me? What's happening here? I'm going to drown. And the circumstances are overwhelming and God is seemingly silent. Thirdly, reasons that we doubt is what we're covering here, is intellectual dissatisfaction with the data. Intellectual dissatisfaction with the data, both from my teachers and my life experience. This is Mark chapter 9. This is the father who has the demon-possessed son. You can turn there if you will. We're going to have to wrap up just momentarily. In Mark chapter 9, look at verse 21. Uh, back up a little bit. Uh, this man says in verse 17, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. It's like epileptic-like fits. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, this demon, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, Jesus said, how long am I to be with you? And they brought the boy to Jesus, verse 20, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. This was the routine of the family. Okay, here's the data. Here's the information. Here's what I know is real in my life. My boy goes crazy with demons. And it is often cast, in verse 22, into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's doubt, isn't it? I believe you are who you are, but please help me believe a little bit more. Because the data in my grid tells me that nothing changes with this boy and that he will never change and that nobody can cure this and that when he throws himself in the fire and gets burned, his skin melts and it's, we got to deal with that. And the whole thing just goes on and on and on. This is Thomas in John 20. You don't have to turn there. It's where Jesus also said to Thomas, stop doubting and believe, Thomas. It's after the resurrection and Jesus comes in the room and the data in Thomas's mind the intellectual grid that he's processing the information of life does not match up with what he's seeing here. And he says, look, you can tell me that Jesus rose from the dead, but until I touch his hand in his side, I will not believe. Why? Because I am intellectually dissatisfied with the data. We struggle with doubt, don't we? Because of a world pressing in on us. And pouring into our intellectual grid data that makes us wonder. People don't rise from the dead. Thomas knew that. 
Demons like this don't come out of my boy. Do you believe? Yeah, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's a doubt moment based on intellectual dissatisfaction with the data. In John chapter 6, in John chapter 6 is one other illustration. You don't have to turn there. Let me just tell you, it's verse 26 where it says that Jesus looked at the crowd and he says, the only reason you're following me is because I'm giving you bread to eat. And then if you look at chapter 6, verse 66, it's easy to remember because it's 666. John 666, it says, after this, after he had done some teaching, it says, after this, many of his disciples left him. What were they? They were doubting. Because why? Because they had misguided motivations. Number four, misguided motivations. Doubt creeps up in us when our motivation for following Christ is not pure and right. And then finally, and here's where we were to re-enter with John the Baptist. Number five, it comes, and John the Baptist is our example. Doubt creeps in from unmet expectations. And here's the short of it, and we'll figure out a way somehow to pick this up next week and finish out the text. Unmet expectations. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 3, and you look at verses 11 and 12, and you capture the message of John the Baptist, you know what he said? The Messiah is coming, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to baptize you with fire! And his winnowing fork is in his hand and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff he's going to burn up. And ever since Jesus came, he hadn't burned anybody. And John got thrown in prison for pronouncing the truth and standing for righteousness and nobody got burned. And all Jesus is is nice. And John had in his mind what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to take the winnowing fork and he was going to take out these Pharisees. And he was going to take out the wicked. And he was going to make the sinners burn. And all Jesus did was heal the blind and make the lame to walk. And raise the dead. And break bread into food and feed the hungry. And no winnowing fork. No fire from the sky. And John's in his dark dungeon. And he's being abused. And he's in prison unjustly. And he's the one who pronounced it. It's like, okay, then are you the Messiah? The Messiah was going to come with a winnowing fork and fire. And he had missed expectations. Jesus wasn't living up to what he thought was going to happen. Well, we have to just pull the plug right there. I wonder if those resonate with you at all. Maybe you have some snapshots or maybe you have huge doubt. And maybe it's from impatience with God's plan of blessing for your life. You're getting tired of waiting on God's promises. How about overwhelming circumstances and God's seeming lack of response? How about intellectual dissatisfaction with the Bible and with the data compared with the data that you're bringing into your grid? How about misguided motivations? You thought your life would be a lot more blessed. That it would be a lot easier if you just followed Jesus. How about unmet expectations like John the Baptist? Jesus just isn't doing things the way I thought he was going to do them. And we have to come to a place where we let God be God and we let Jesus be Jesus, right? Well, we'll try to pick this up and finish it out. May the Holy Spirit somehow use the challenge of the day to make application to our lives. Why don't we stand and close with prayer? And so, Father, would you renew our faith? 
Help us to just take you at your word. Father, we recognize that if someone cut from the cloth of John the Baptist can ask questions that are pretty honest and reveal a little bit of doubt, would you strengthen us in our moments of doubt? Sometimes in our discouragement or in defeated moments or in dark moments, we question. Would you help us to just keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep following, and to know that you are in control? And uh, to trust you, Lord, to walk by faith. Father, we do believe, and please help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.